0: Welcome to Podcasting Stories, insights and interviews from people just like you, using podcasts to grow their business and share their message. Podcasting Stories is brought to you by Your Podcast Team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Welcome to the Podcasting Stories podcast. My name is David Spray, and today we're talking with Jeff Paolo, the President of Engineered Tax Services. Jeff was promoted to President just a month ago as a result of his firm, the Growth Partnership, merging with Engineered Tax Services. In this episode, we learn about the history of both firms and the potential synergies that led to the merger. Like many of our guests, Jeff is intrigued about the ways that a podcast could amplify the message of the combined firm. But he's also thinking about using the podcast is a way to showcase key strategic partnerships. If you've ever considered having your own podcast, this episode has a lot of great ideas on ways a podcast might be beneficial for you. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. Dave, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. Oh, yeah. It's my, it's my pleasure. So, yeah, this podcast is for people who have a podcast already or who are considering having a podcast. And I believe you fall into that second category, right? You don't currently have a podcast, but you're considering launching one. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. We don't have one currently, but are really down the road in terms of thinking that we need one.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: That sounds great. Well, hopefully
0: this interview will give you a better sense of kind of what podcasting is all about, and it'll help you better determine if it makes sense to launch a podcast in the near future. Sound good? Sounds great. So, I believe you were recently promoted to president of Engineered Tax
1: Services. Is that correct? That is. Uh, that happened about a month and a half ago. I'm excited to be in the new role. And it follows on the acquisition of my two companies last October. So, October of 2020 by Julio and the team at Engineered Tax Services.
0: That's, that's awesome. And let's talk a bit about those two companies. Let's talk about the kind of the history of it. I think the older company is a growth partnership, right?
1: It is. We had been together for 21 years prior to the acquisition owned by myself and my partner, Charles Hyland, founded back in 1999. And the premise, you know, my background, I served as the director of marketing for two CPA firms. One was about a $6 million local firm up in Madison, Wisconsin. And the other was a top 50 firm, uh, located here in St. Louis.
0: And prior to that,
1: prior to that, I had come out of the uh, business banking world. And it was interesting because as I made that transition, things that were just basic block and tackle in the banking world, Really were perceived to be rocket science on the c p a side because historically they hadn't had to market they hadn't had to sell, and as competition was increasing and some of the prohibitions on the solicitation of another firm's clients were relaxed, I uh, entered the profession at an interesting time, ah. Yeah that, yeah, that makes
0: that makes sense. And so after having served in that role at a couple firms, I guess you had the idea to launch the business because you were thinking that, that rather than just trying to help one firm at a time by being an employee, if you had a consulting firm, you could help many more firms. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it really came down to infrastructure. My partner, Charles, came out of Arthur Anderson, and he was in the contract finance and accounting division. And as you look at a public accounting firm, first of all, they didn't have the skill or expertise to manage a marketing professional. That just wasn't in their wheelhouse or their experience. And then secondarily to that, even if you went out and hired somebody to fill that role in your firm, the first thing that person was going to do is say, hey, look, who's going to do the website? Who's going to do the newsletter? Today, who's going to do social media? Who's going to do Mm -hmm. layout and design? And so there is a lot of functional areas in the, in the marketing realm that an accounting firm, once they jump in, is shocked that they need to support. And so our value proposition was that, look, we're going to go hire all these functional experts and they're going to work on behalf of multiple clients. You can have as much of them as you need, but you don't need to incur the overhead of the full-time employee, which is probably overkill. And then assign somebody at the strategic level to wrap everything into a plan and then make sure the trains are running on time. So when we started the growth partnership, our main product line uh, was outsourced marketing services. And we've been doing that now for, I guess, close to the past 25 years.
0: Okay. And then what are some of the other things that you ended up kind of evolving into doing besides just that outsourced marketing uh, support?
1: Yeah, it was interesting because the marketing worked and we were, were creating lots of leads for our clients and they were doing a horrible job converting them. And so okay. again, you know, the accountants have been raised and trained to be great accountants, not to be great business developers or salespeople. And so there was an incredible amount of frustration uh, on our part, given the opportunity we were creating that wasn't able to be captured. And so that led to us getting more into the training realm as well, where we developed a course called the Reluctant Salesperson, aptly named to resonate with our audience. Right. And really taught CPAs that didn't have a background in sales, what professional and consultative sales was all about. And it was a selfish move because we wanted them to be able to take better advantage of the leads that our marketing program was establishing for them. Sure, sure.
0: Okay. So that that makes sense. Yeah, because if they weren't taking advantage of those leads, at some point, they'd stop paying you for those leads, right?
1: Yeah. And they don't pay us on a per lead basis, but certainly the ability to grow the firm was the intended value proposition. So getting them to connect those dots was a huge move for us. The training really was impactful.
0: Okay. So I love case studies and uh, examples. So I would like you to maybe think of one of the those accounting firm clients, and that you you feel like you guys really made a big difference on. And and we don't have to talk about the you know the name of the firm, but does uh, does a particular example come to mind that you could kind of just you know walk us through? Like what was the situation when you started? And where was it, you know, after you were involved for a few years?
1: Absolutely. And it really goes back to some of the work we're doing in the advisory space. We've got a multi-year program that we've uh, developed called the Trusted Advisor that is really... Position to help accountants deal with the number one strategic challenge they're facing uh, in their practice right now. And so, as a precursor to that case study, let me set the stage a little bit. You know, obviously, as you're working with your accountant, many times you think of them as the people that do your compliance. They file your annual taxes. Mm-hmm. If you're large enough, they perform your annual audit. These are annualized services that repeat require a high level of technical sophistication. And for a long, long time, that was our bread and butter. But the CPAs are uniquely positioned to kind of be the quarterback of a client's financial uh, realm. And so Mm -hmm. the clients are turning to the accountants and saying, we want you to be more proactive. We want more ideas. We want you to be more advisory oriented. And one of the questions that we ask our clients as we're getting started with them is, how bad does your firm sag? And they're all kind of taken aback by that because they have no idea what we're talking about. But SAG, S-A-G, is an acronym for what we call the skill and availability gap. And it's the challenge that, candidly, all professional service providers face, but it's very acute in the accounting profession. On the skill gap, they went to school to be accountants. And so, yeah, they went to business school and we told you you were going to be well-rounded. But for our accounting majors, it was, you know, yeah, you got intro to marketing and intro to HR, but sure. it was 101, 102, intermediate, advanced, and then, hey, let's tack a fifth year on to give you even more technical expertise. Right. And I I want to be careful here because I, I clearly technical expertise are table stakes. You know, mm-hmm. we assume that mm-hmm. our advisors, our professionals are technically excellent, but you know, we kind of laugh if I'm giving a speech and you ask a room full of accountants, what are the four P's of marketing? You know, you can drive eye contact with you as a facilitator to almost zero because they don't want you to call on them because they had no idea. And so when it comes to running their firms for a long, long time, they just needed to be great accountants and everything took care of itself. But with the advent of new technology and more competition, now they're being called on to be great entrepreneurs. And candidly, they just don't have that education set in their background. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean there's not some people out there that have a knack for it and you know can be successful, but they weren't professionally trained in those areas. So there's a skill gap. And once we get them to realize that, we kind of hit them with the, but wait, there's more. Let's talk a little bit about the availability gap. And if you look at like the baseline accountant and we publish a big annual benchmark called the Rosenberg survey that dives deep into the data of over 500 accounting firms. What we find is like a baseline manager might work 2200 hours over the course of the year and 1600 hours of 1600 of those hours are chargeable. So doing the client work, mm-hmm, you know, that's kind mm-hmm, of working sure. in the business, but. What's interesting about that, it only leaves about 600 hours to work on the business. And that's where developing a deeper relationship with your client, being more proactive and advisory-oriented happens. So we've got 600 hours, best case scenario. Let's be real. We're going to cut that in half because you've got vacation, you've got a sick day, you've got non-chargeable time that goes along with the billable hours. So maybe we're closer to 300 hours if we're honest with ourselves. And then if you divide that by, you know, 52 weeks in a year, you know, you got like between five and six hours a week to actually Mm -hmm. make a difference, to deliver Mm -hmm. the services that your clients are demanding. And the cruel joke about that is if you don't do it this week, the chance that you're going to double up and do 10 hours next week is close to zero. And so that time is gone. It's lost forever. And so if we get back to the case study, we had a large firm that came to us that said, look, we want to be more advisory oriented. We think the partners need to set the tone. And it's a large firm. We took 38 partners through a two-year program that was really designed first with time management in mind. So we literally had them schedule time on their calendar each week to do these proactive working on the business activities to more deeply engage their best clients. And then once they had the discipline of that, then we gave them some very specific things to do with that time. And after two years, they had quadrupled the assets they had under management in their wealth management practice, and they had grown the advisory work by double digits. And it's simply because they committed to the block and tackling needed to move that needle forward. And I give all kinds of credit to the firm's managing partner. He led by example, he held people accountable. And a lot of what we implemented with them has now become part of their culture. And they're having continued success going forward, independent of us, which, you know, from our standpoint is the greatest compliment you can receive is that something that you built uh, still works after you wrap up the engagement.
0: That is, is awesome. So I think you indirectly answered my next question. Oh, by the way, on the acronyms, skills availability gap, the availability, does that mean the availability of the hours to do that Correct. stuff? Okay. Gotcha.
1: Correct. So we want to be advisory oriented. At some level, we don't know what we're doing, or at least we haven't been professionally trained with that. And even if we did, we've got only a few hours in any given week to make it happen.
0: Yep. No, that that makes sense. So the follow-up question there, because I also, it's funny, we have some things in common. I started my career at Arthur Anderson, and then I was the first director of business development in the early 2000s for a large local CPA firm here in Houston. And one of the things I was trying to do was help the partners do a better job of of you know the things we're talking about. And one of the exercises I did, I went to the accounting or the, the controller for the firm and I had to run a report of the top 10 largest clients by partner in descending order of like revenue. And then I took that list to each partner. There were only nine. And I asked them first if they knew who their top 10 clients were. And I don't think any of them even knew who their top 10 clients were. And then the second question I had was, how long has it been since you called up one of these clients, invited them to lunch, told them that the meter wouldn't be running, your treat, you just wanted to catch up with them. And the answer, like when you asked them about the four piece of marketing, the eye contact was lost then. Because on average, it was like 22 months since they had last just called up the client to have a, a lunch. So my first marketing suggestion to the firm was, your top 10 clients, like just start by having lunch with them twice a year. You know, and it was amazing what a difference that made. And, and it was an easy first step because they already knew these people. They already had relationship. It wasn't like going to a networking event where they had to pass out business cards. So has that kind of been your experience as well, that the first place to start is with the current
1: client portfolio? A hundred percent. These are people that you've already got a relationship with and you've got all of their information. And so we developed an interesting piece of software that we call ABLE. And it's a CRM, but it's a CRM that really helps the users get to what you just described. We have them focus on a handful of clients, handful of referral sources, handful of prospects, because, Mm -hmm. you know, the Pareto principles at play here, 20% of your clients drive 80% of your revenue. Those are the people that we need to be focused on, just like you did, you know, the top 10 clients in terms of billing by partner. That's a perfect way to approach that. And we are blown away and and kind of bemused every time we finally get a CPA to commit to that type of activity, which, you know, isn't a huge bar to get over from a sales standpoint. Hey, mm-hmm. take your client to lunch on your nickel for two hours and, you know, ask them how things are going. Right, They come back and they're they're blown away by how much opportunity for work has come out of that conversation. And we just kind of laugh. We're like, you know, what a concept. Talk to your clients and (laughs) grow your practice. But they're so busy working in their business that, again, they don't have time to work on their business unless you specifically help them block that off and point them in the right direction. And here's the thing it it's only going to get worse and we've all heard you know the saying that you know a butterfly flaps its wings in beijing and it rains mm-hmm. in new york city there's something like that going on here where i think it's only going to get worse and let me explain what i mean by that you know i'm going to jump over into the realm of politics right now okay. and if you look at how the congressional districts have been gerrymandered mm-hmm. it's almost impossible to win a primary election without being ideologically pure. And this is on right, both sides right. of the aisle. You, yep, know, you have to yep. be dark red. If you're a Republican, you've got to be dark blue. If you're a Democrat. Yep. Understood. And the result of that is that the people that we're sending to Congress aren't middle of the road, people that can reach across the aisle and, and mm-hmm. find consensus. They're ideologues who want to get reelected or are going to continue to cater to their polarized bases. And when they get to Washington, nothing can get done. Mm -hmm. So as a result, major tax reform, major tax legislation, which used to be a generational thing, maybe 12, 15, perhaps as long as 20 years when you saw a huge revision to the tax code, is now happening In some cases, on a two-year congressional election cycle, right? We just got done with Trump's plan. And here in the fourth quarter, we're going to get Biden's plan that's going to be a polar opposite. right? Once that's passed, everyone's got to figure it out. There's a ripple effect. And if you're an accountant, those five hours that you had just probably became two. Right. And, and they cry all the time, we don't have the time to do this stuff. And you know I'm sympathetic, but when we do the math, they've got the time, they've got to choose to do it. But increasingly, as a result of the pace at which the tax code is changing, they don't have the time. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is they end up simply being compliance shops and they yep. don't add value into client relationships. And I'll give you an example just from this week. We had a client come to us because they had participated in a webinar that we did talking about cost segregation. So if you're a building mm-hmm. owner, you know, hopefully you know what cost segregation is. Not only was this firm the owner of multiple buildings, many of which were factories, they were actually a pretty robust manufacturer based here in the U.S., and they're working with an accounting firm that if I gave you the name, it's a household name, everybody would know mm-hmm. who they are. They've been with them for 15 years. They've never explored cost segregation. Yeah. They've never explored the research and development credit, which they clearly qualify for. They've never gone after en- energy credits, which they would be eligible for. And as a result of that, you know, they were being, I might almost argue that it was rising to the level of malpractice. Sure. I won't go quite that far because I understand the dynamic in which this Mm -hmm. is unfolding, but for them to be working with a top 10 accounting firm for 15 years and to have qualifying R and D activity, to have real estate that they own within the business and never once have talked about something like cost segregation or the R and D credit or energy credits. It just blows my mind. And as you start doing the math, this owner very quickly surmised that I have paid millions of dollars in taxes that I didn't need to. And there's the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's our challenge as an organization going forward is how do we help these middle and small uh, businesses with what they need to do to take full advantage of all the opportunities that are available to them Because if their CPA isn't filling that role, there's nobody left to do that. Right. So that's where we see tremendous opportunity in the market going forward.
0: Yeah, I can see that. And I I wonder, you'd mentioned Pareto's principle, also known as the 80-20 rule. And it makes me wonder if maybe part of the solution is that if they did an 80, you know, a Pareto's principal analysis of their current clients, not just their top 10, but shed that 20% of the clients who they probably don't really make any money on anyway, that would free up, you know, a few more hours a week to do these other activities. And it just makes you wonder if, if they'd be far better off, like, like going, having one more lunch with a top 10 client and not having this, this hundredth client who they don't make any money on. Is that is that kind of part of the strategy too, do you think?
1: You know, it's a conversation that we have with our clients as we do the analysis of their practice. And, you know, in some cases, we work with them to bundle up kind of their C and D level clients. Doesn't mean that they couldn't be A and B level clients for a smaller firm with fewer capabilities, but... At the end of the day, if you are not taking care of your most important accounts because you're distracted by an account that at the end of the day doesn't move the needle for you from a revenue standpoint, mm-hmm. it's almost like saying, hey, I'm too busy driving to take the time to stop and get gas. There's no immediate consequence to that, but eventually it's going to catch up with you. And so I think that's exactly the type of analysis that these accounting firms need to be. Yep. I I would agree. Well, let's well thank you
0: for that that background on the growth partnership and in some time on Able. Now let's talk about the merger with Engineered Tax Services. So, kind of give us the background. The founder uh, is Julio Gonzalez, who was on a podcast of mine, another podcast a, a while back. So, uh, what's kind of the whole story? How did you first meet Julio? When did you learn about Engineered Tax Services? And then, what prompted the, the desire by both of you to combine forces.
1: You know, it was interesting. It, it came completely out of left field. We were introduced by a mutual uh, acquaintance, Alan Colton, who, as you know, is one of the power brokers in the M&A world inside the accounting profession. And mm-hmm. we were certainly aware of Julio and ETS. He was certainly aware, of, always thought highly of him, but didn't have a huge opportunity to work together over the years. But as I mentioned previously, one of the things that we're really trying to help our clients do is be more advisory oriented. And our focus had been like, hey, let's go out there, let's have these lunches, let's ask these questions, let's identify the opportunity. And we kind of finished our role in that process once they had identified the opportunity and were prepared to hopefully run with that on their own. When we started talking to ETS, we recognized early on that a combination allowed us to complete the loop, complete the circuit, if you will. So when that partner of an accounting firm came back and they've had lunch with their client and they're like, well, yeah, they do own commercial real estate and they do have qualifying R&D activity and what have you. Now, as a result of the combination, we can simply pass the baton to one of our technical experts on the ETS side to help that accountant do what they need to do for that particular client. Because in many cases, the firm isn't going to have the expertise to take advantage of those credits themselves. And so in the past, maybe they were aware of it, but just didn't do anything with it. Or maybe they were using a third party provider. Now we've got more of an integrated approach Where if they want assistance, we can hook them up, have our professionals come in subordinate to them. So the accounting partner is still the quarterback of the whole thing and perform these engagements, get the client well served, get the accounting firm some additional revenue streams and and really put the relationship on solid footing in terms of what the client is expecting from their CPA. So Mm -hmm. there were all kinds of synergies. We joked throughout the due diligence process that one plus one was going to equal five. And, you know, they always say a year in, you know, whether or not you should have done the deal. We just passed our one year anniversary. And what's exciting about it is I think one plus one actually equals 10. And Mm -hmm. we'll see if we can't get those synergies to manifest as we deepen the connectivity between all of our firms. No, that
0: that makes a lot of sense, and it, it prompts a, an idea that I've had for a while. So, you know, so I I own several businesses. One of them is this podcasting business, but my original business is around a specialized part of the tax code, the the IC disk, and I would see the same thing that you know a top ten CPA firm whose website says they do IC disk never brought it up, and. The, the pitch of that top 10 firm is we have all these services all under one umbrella. And so you have a one-stop shop, but it seems like in practice, what happens is it seems like the better model is for a smaller firm that's more of a generalist firm that has a deep relationship with the client, and then they partner up with you and your <laughs> network of experts. It seems to me at the end of the day from what I've seen the clients actually better served by that that model that on the surface seems less efficient and more disjointed as opposed to having everybody under the same umbrella is that kind of been what you've seen too
1: Yeah it allows you to be a little bit more nimble doesn't it you know so think of the baseline CPA It's kind of the hub of the week. They're they're not an engineer. And so when we do cost segregation, they're not going to be reviewing blueprints and architectural plans to make sure that we take full advantage of everything that we can capture for accelerated depreciation. But they understand from a tax standpoint why that is so important. And so they've got a choice. They can either build that expertise in-house or they can partner with a third party. And some of the difficulty there is Obviously, the larger accounting firms do have that expertise in-house, but maybe I'm reluctant to partner with them because at the end of the day, I don't want them building a relationship with one of my best clients and setting up a situation where potentially I lose the annual tax return or the audit. Mm -hmm. And so reaching out to a third party that isn't an accounting firm, that does have the technical expertise in each of these areas. And at ETS, we're fantastic, cost seg, R&D, energy credits. There are other people that we have relationships with that are fantastic at other things, like the ERTC, Employee Retention Tax Credit, or Mm Watsi or Mm -hmm. 5G, Rooftop Leasing. Mm -hmm. The, The challenge is to pull all of that together into an ecosystem that allows the accountant to work with trusted, vetted advisors that aren't going to present a competitive risk to taking away their core engagement. And that's what we're pulling together in something that we call the HABU Advisory Accelerator, H-A-B-U. And that's an acronym for highest and best use. And what we're trying to do, Dave, is assemble, we, we kind of see ourselves as the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And so the analogy is, there are all these specialized service providers out there that are incredibly technically proficient at what they do best. ERTC, Watsi, 5G, CosSeg, R&D, jet mm-hmm. leasing, whatever the case may be. And what, they're equivalent to the app developers. And what Apple does a nice job with is they say, hey, look, you can develop apps for our iPhone, but... Only after you go through a rigorous screening process. And so we're not going to let malware into the app Mm -hmm. store. Mm -hmm. We're not going to let unscrupulous developers into our ecosystem. We're doing the same thing by vetting our client advisory partners. And as they bring their expertise in the ecosystem, then we got the CPA firms. And in some cases, we go direct to the client who are saying, hey, I would like to participate in that ecosystem. I only have a couple of hours in any given week to be proactive with my best accounts. And so the highest and best use of my time is very quickly identifying which of these providers represent a compelling conversation with this particular client and connecting the dots as efficiently as possible. And so this advisory accelerator that we're building is something that we're very excited about. And candidly, I think an example of when we talk about one plus one equals 10, this is the embodiment of that. Mm-hmm. No, that
0: is great. And I think that is long overdue because, you know, we have something kind of similar it, 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 the, in the tax consulting business, but it's much less formalized. It's a much looser, less structured for the same reason that you know we're so busy helping our clients technically, and that you know, we maybe do a little better job than the average partner in a CPA firm, but but we still don't have the breadth of that network because we haven't chosen to invest the resources in that vetting and everything else. And so, like, how many different specialties are you talking about that you have in this network at this point? Is it, you know, a, a dozen or so or, or more than that?
1: You know, it's probably close to 50. We've got really? this all whiteboarded. We've wow. starting to get some people signed up. But, you know, you're a, a perfect example of somebody we'd love to talk to because of your expertise with IC disk. Very specialized, very technical. When it's needed, it's needed in spades but it's probably not needed in every client that I might have. So most accounting firms understand what it is, but they're not technically proficient. So having a partner like you to be involved with that, you know, kind of follows the model that we're trying to put together. But we've got a list of probably 50 specialized areas. And my guess is we don't have them all, but I would guess by the time we wrap up, and a lot of this will depend on if they're exclusive or if they're in with people that do the same thing that they do as well. But I think we'd have 50 plus that our accounting firms could tap into for whatever a particular client might have interest in. Oh, That's, that's great. And where were you in the
0: evolution of that? Have, have you... Kind of formally launch this? Or are you still kind of in a more informal phase?
1: We've had a soft launch where okay. we're introducing through our advisory series every three weeks one of our new members. And so every three weeks, our accounting firms get invited to an hour of CPE where they get introduced to something that most likely their firm doesn't do, but their clients may need. We've had a lot of success with that. All of that is building up toward a formal launch that we're targeting for May of 2022 when we want to hold the first Haboo conference. And and the goal there is to really kind of connect the dots, bring the practitioners into a space with the specialized service providers and structure the event in the way where hopefully there's a catalytic activity as those relationships are built and the trust is developed between the equivalent of app developers and end users. Again, we're the iPhone. Let's bring them together onto a platform, right. and you know, connect the dots.
0: Well, that is really exciting. And so, if you're on this every three week cadence, well, I don't want to get it get ahead of myself. So, I'll, I'll I'll come back to that. So, so thank you for that background, and thanks for describing why the merger made so much sense on paper, and why it's worked out so well in practice. So. Let's take this opportunity to kind of switch gears. So, when you think about a podcast, what what why are some of the reasons that you're interested in it? like what what are you hoping to accomplish from from having a podcast?
1: You know, I, I think the biggest thing that appeals to me is how nimble uh, the format is. And let me explain what I mean by that. We've got different constituents that we want to support. We've got our client advisory partners, we've got our accounting firm partners and managers, and we've got ourselves as an organization. How does a podcast help accelerate results for those three populations? For our client advisory partners, it's a fantastic way to highlight them and let them showcase what they bring to the table in an in interview format, You know, very similar to what we're doing here today. Okay, it's not a sales pitch, it's not high pressure. if I'm the consumer, I'm listening to it on demand um in my car, on my headphones while I run, you know whatever the case mm-hmm. may be it being nimble from that standpoint. The other thing is it's one stop shopping. so as we start to compile these episodes, if I'm an accounting firm and I understand that I've got clients that are expecting me to punch above my weight class when it comes to the services that I'm delivering, I can turn to the podcast and then say, okay, here are the things that I think this particular client might be interested in. Let me first educate myself by listening. And then Mm -mm. if I think it's something that applies, let me flip this over to my client and have them listen to it because Mm. they will be pre-sold in advance of the conversation that I have with them. And oh, so what I really like about a podcast is I think it's a rifle as opposed to a shotgun. Mm-hmm. If I take out an ad, if I write an article, if I'm on TV or on the radio, that nest that nest is uh, cast very, very wide. And, you know, hopefully we capture something in that. With a podcast, I'm only listening if I'm really interested. But if you're really interested, then you and I probably ought to be having a conversation And so I like the ability to target very precisely based on who the topic resonates with.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a great description. And you make me think of something else. I forget who wrote the book, A Thousand Raving Fans. Maybe it was Simon Sinek. And he was talking about the idea that you don't need a million social media followers. You don't need a email list with a million people. All you really need to succeed at just about anything is a thousand raving fans, a thousand really loyal people. And we find kind of the same thing with podcast listenership, that if you have a very targeted podcast, you shouldn't expect to have millions of downloads. And the value is not so much how many downloads you get as much as it is like, just think of an extreme example. Let's say you have a, uh, uh, an expert that comes on in, in a particular specialty. Let's say they come on, you have a great interview. They really appreciate you showcasing it. And let's say they send that episode to their whole database. And so now their database learns more about Habu, a little more about ETS. And then let's just say that just one of the CPA clients of yours listens to that episode and refer and has their you know client listen to that episode and then that that ends up being a successful engagement for that guest on the podcast. And let's just say that only two people listen to that whole podcast. Wouldn't your your client advisory partner find that to have been a successful venture?
1: Hundred percent. Again, that rifle approach. We work with an external telemarketing firm in our marketing department, and I just had a conversation with them earlier this week, where I said, "Look, I would actually like to reduce the number of leads that you're sending to us, and have what you're sending over be higher quality. So I'd rather follow mm-hmm. up on ten really qualified leads, people that are ready to have a conversation with us right now, than have you give us a hundred leads." where only 10 of them are ready to, you know, have the the conversation because then I'm spending my time on 90 leads that just aren't ready to buy. Mm -hmm. And so I agree with that. I, I think we're coming into this with the supposition less is more. If we had a couple hundred followers over time, but they were loyal listeners, active participants, and, you know, actively disseminating The podcast to people who are interesting that to us would be an incredible success. I don't need to have 80,000 subscribers. You know, I'm not in it to win a game in terms of the number of likes. I'm in it to get the right piece of information to the right people at exactly the right time in a very credible and intimate fashion. And I, I think that's what podcasting does. I'm not sitting in a room with a bunch of other people. I'm listening to it at the time that best suits me and you know, our goal would be to position ourselves as thought leaders when it comes to all of the advisory services that an accounting firm needs to be introducing to their clients.
0: No, I I really, really like the the approach. I think you really have, I think you've nailed it. So who would you anticipate? So it sounds like you're anticipating a guest format rather than you just droning on for an hour all by yourself is that right you're thinking interview format
1: yeah I, you know I, I don't i don't add a lot to the equation other than perhaps structuring an interview that would be appealing to the end listener but i my vision is that i would interview a person or people from each of our client advisory partners And just have a conversation. Tell us about what you do. Tell us about where this makes sense. Tell us where it doesn't make sense so we don't go down Mm -hmm. a rabbit hole. Give us some case studies uh, that you've experienced where clients have benefited from your advice. And then the other thing I'd like to do periodically is pull in some of our accounting firms that have worked with our partners and have them share the success that they had. Not only the financial impact that it has had on the firm, because obviously this represents a revenue stream for them. But more importantly, the feedback they're getting from their clients in terms of the value they've driven into that relationship as a result of the introduction to one of our client advisory partners. And I think as we create that, then you create a little bit of a viral loop where, hey, here's the success that is happening. If I tap into this ecosystem, here's all the information I need about the individual pieces of that ecosystem. To me, that just feeds back on itself, and hopefully creates something that our listeners would look forward to hearing. I think we're targeting every other week from from a scheduling standpoint.
0: Okay, well that that sounds that sounds like a great idea. And I can tell you, when I interview a guest for a podcast, and this is maybe something for you to consider if you if you move forward with this, is I want to showcase my guest so well and, sh- and, and help them tell their story in such a great way that my goal is five years from now, if, if I run into the guest at some meeting and he says to me, do you know what my number one used marketing piece is? It's the link to the podcast we did five years ago because nothing really encapsulates what we do. And we just use that after every you know with every prospect, we say, "Hey, if you want to learn more about us, we were a guest on this this podcast, and they sent him the link and and that so just so you know that's like my metric. When I start every podcast interview, I say to myself, "Make this so good make this make the guest shine so brightly that they selfishly will use this for years as their number one marketing piece." And of course that gives me some trickle down effect, right? Because that that every time they forward that, they're they're learning about, about me and you know our podcasting business, or they're learning about the iC disc or they're learning about something else. So just something to to consider is like a metric. What what do you think about that? Does that seem to kind of fit with what you're thinking?
1: I think that's spot on. You know, if, if the content that we're able to pull together has value, it will find audience. Our goal, and again, I don't want it to be sales oriented. I don't want Mm -hmm. it to be schlocky. I want it to be, Mm -hmm. here's an opportunity to hear from somebody who is a technical expert in an area that I don't have personal expertise in, but my clients may benefit from and Mm -hmm. educate myself on what that is and where it applies. And then I, I think, I think trust is actually beginning to take root by listening to the podcast. You're getting a sense Mm -hmm. of who the practitioner Mm -hmm. is. You're getting a sense of their style. You're trying to determine, is this somebody that I would be comfortable working with? And the organic nature of this is something that I like. I can envision some interviews are going to be 30 to 35 minutes and I could see some going over an hour. And Mm -hmm. I, I think the and and maybe you've experienced this, but I, I just think when you're rolling, you let it roll. And when you're done, you're done. And the listeners, if you've got a good sense for how to calibrate that, will go along for the ride. No, I think you're I think you are exactly right. And yeah,
0: you're 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 exactly right. And I tell people one of the benefits of having a podcast is it's like having your own radio show with, but with no limitations, you don't have to take commercial breaks. You don't have to fit it in a certain time block. You can talk, uh, as long or as short as you, you like. And that's one of the things I really enjoy is if an interview is really going well, we just, you know, kind of keep going. So speaking of that is, you know, it, boy, I can't believe how the time has flown. What other than kind of the strategy you have that you've talked about and, and who your guests would be, are there any other benefits you can, you know, imagine to having a podcast or anything that that comes to mind that, that you might want to just talk about as far as, you know, pick my brain on something or or just share what some of the things you see as a benefit?
1: Yeah, I just think the on-demand and the portability are huge. Mhm. Again, getting the right piece of content to the right person at the right time, and we don't know what the right time is. So, you know, having it there on demand is huge. I think people who are experts in their field will, I think that will come through in the podcast. So it allows them to position themselves as an authority or a thought leader. Certainly we're hoping to attract leads and and reach new audiences efficiently. You know, so there, I just think there's a lot of benefits that we hope to achieve from the strategy. Yeah, no, I think it's, I, I, I think you've nailed it. It's that it's the on demand
0: and the portability because when you, I've listened to participate in some of your webinars, and I'm guessing you probably record them, and there's probably a mechanism where people can listen to past episodes. Is that a fair assumption? It is. But I'm guessing, though, that if you're not familiar with your website and you're not a regular user, it may be difficult to figure out how to f- get to those, and it may even be more difficult trying to do it on your phone. And that's a, a, what I find, because I, I can speak for myself. My podcast listening is when I'm working out, when I'm doing errands, chores, or when I'm driving. And none of those things lend itself to bringing my laptop along, firing up the ETS website, you know, trying to dig through and find some particular webinar that you may have recorded. So I think you've really uh, kind of nailed it there.
1: Well, and I think there's also you know we had some internal discussion hey do we want to do like a vlog series and record zoom and you mm-hmm. know we're to the point where we're fairly sophisticated where we've got the ability at having come through the pandemic where we've got green screens and lighting and you know we look pretty good on zoom if we drop in on a call or something like that but at the end of the day you've got to pull all of that up and to your point you know I'm probably not watching a zoom. Uh, video on YouTube while I'm driving or while I'm working out. And so, I like the audio uh, version of it. And first of all, it's, I think, much easier to produce. Secondly, I don't think you're losing anything by not having the video. And again, the portability, I think, is absolutely key. Yep. I, I completely agree. Well, I have two more questions for
0: you before we wrap up. So, the first is, is there anything that we didn't cover that you think we should have covered.
1: No, I think it's been a nice history. I mean, hopefully your listeners get a little bit of background of how we got to where we are today. I'm really excited in this new role of president of not only Engineered Tax Services, but continuing with the Growth Partnership and with ABLE and several new initiatives that we're looking forward to announcing shortly I, I do think one plus one equals 10. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to kind of get our story out there a little bit. Yeah, the, I
0: I appreciate it as well. So the last question, this is kind of a curveball question. If you could go back in time and give some advice to your 25-year-old self, what advice might you give? <laughs>
1: Uh, do we have another hour?
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure. But you know, for, for, for brevity, we assumed, why don't we just take a couple minutes? And I get this is a curveball, so I appreciate that you're willing to play along.
1: Yeah. You know what? So my, if you're familiar with the DISC behavioral profiling, DISC. Yeah. I'm kind of a high D and I, I like to drive. I want results. I want them yesterday. And I think I learned the lesson, but I wish I had learned it earlier in my career. When we first started the growth partnership, I drove people really hard and we accomplished lots of great things, but I also burned a lot of people out. Mm, And I think if I could go back and talk to my 25 year old self, I would be like, you know what? It doesn't have to get built in 24 hours. 72 hours is probably okay. okay. And so I, I don't mean that to say, hey, be lackadaisical or, you know, don't have a sense of urgency or drive. Not at all. I think those are important elements to drive into any organization. But sometimes the ideas can far outstrip the execution. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned on the other side, and and I Try to carry this with me, uh, especially in my new role, is that fast is not always best. Doesn't mean we shouldn't act with a sense of urgency, but we want to dot the I's, we want to cross the T's, and we want to make sure we're very, very credible when we go to market. And a good example that I have of that, we just brought on a new high-level salesperson, Jerry Winkle, somebody that I knew uh, personally and professionally prior to recruiting him into ETS. And over the last four months, he has built an incredible strategic partnership in the jet aviation sector. We're working with people that have had some kind of liquidity event, perhaps reduce the amount of tax liability that they have by purchasing a jet and placing it into service. And there's all kinds of nuance that goes into this from a legal structure standpoint and who can take advantage of it and who can't. But... I know that we would have loved to have that product in the marketplace 60 days ago. And I know that if we had pushed for that uh, release date, that we would be stumbling all over ourselves right now. And so we took a little bit longer. We probably took twice the amount of time that we thought it was going to take. And we just rolled it out to our, our sales professionals last week. But I'm happy to report we've got a program that's ready to go to market. We've got the SOP defined. We've got the collateral in place. We've got the messaging fine tuned. And as a result of that, I think we're going to achieve results that are greater and faster than if we had actually moved faster at the outset. And so we live in a high pace environment. I'm always trying to calibrate myself. What's the sweet spot where, yes, we have a sense of urgency, but we don't get too far out in front of our skis? I love that answer
0: and I think what I'm hearing you say is that don't lose sight of the big picture. Don't be so focused on your short-term tactical objectives that you lose sight of the big picture. Does that about summarize it?
1: I think it is. I I would rather under-promise and over-deliver than the other way around. And When you move too fast, uh, I I think the perfect analogy is you get too far out in front of your skis Mm -hmm. and then you're just hanging on for dear life and eventually you're going to wipe out and it's not going to be pretty. You know, making sure do small well, but do lots of small things. And Mm -hmm. if we can have that ongoing cadence of just impeccable execution, that's going to serve us well over the long haul. Well oh, I think that is a great message
0: to uh wrap up this podcast with. So Jeff, I really have enjoyed our time together today and I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to to spend an hour with me and uh, and let me pick your brain on some things.
1: Dave, I've really enjoyed it and uh, thanks again for the invite. I really it was uh, it was my pleasure. So, well I hope you have a great day
0: and a great weekend. And thanks again for being on the show. My pleasure. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at www.podcastingstories.com. This podcast is brought to you by your podcast team. If you have ever considered having your own podcast, head over to www.yourpodcast.com team to learn more about how they can help you. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.